Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. According to polls conducted by Gallup and the Pew Center, the popularity of socialized medicine, legalization of marijuana, labor unions, and raising the minimum wage are significant, yet, thanks to the overwhelming conservative majorities at every level of government, the country is moving farther and farther away from realizing these policies. In his November cover story, Rebirth of a Nation, Jonathan Taplin lays out a progressive case for states' rights, noting the disparity of power that rural voters hold and how the best way to preserve our union is for states to go their own way. I spoke with Taplin the day that CNN, the Clintons, Obama, George Soros, Joe Biden, and other prominent Democrats were sent mail bombs, making his prediction of a civil war seem even more plausible. Here's our conversation. How would you contextualize your argument within the history of federalism? Because it's typically conservative argument about states' rights, and you're reclaiming it for the left. Well, I'm going to argue that we have no choice. I mean, here we are this morning, um, five bombs have been planted at major Democratic leaders' houses, and there is a civil war going on. Uh, it's a it's what Steve Schmidt calls a cold civil war, but it's still going on. And so there is no way, given the way the Constitution is written, that the Republican minority will not be able to control the Senate. In 20 years, it will get worse. Uh, there will be... 70% of the people will live in 15 states. And so 70 seats in the Senate will be controlled by small, rural, white states that have no interest in thinking about the needs of the urban majority of this country. And so I believe that Jefferson originally thought through this problem. And his way of thinking about it was that each state should be secure in figuring out what to do within its own boundaries and be united with the rest of the states when dealing with foreign countries through the State Department, the Defense Department, the Treasury, all of those things. And so, I mean, honestly, short of a constitutional convention, which I don't think would ever happen, and by the way, South Dakota is in no way going to give up its right to have two senators, even if it is down to, uh, you know, 20,000 people in South Dakota. So um, we're in a really terrible situation where... The majority of the country wants to go one way, but there is a minority, partially because of the way this constitution was set up and partially because the way the Republican Party is financed, that can continue to control um, the country 
for the sake of the plutocrats. And so the history of civil rights, obviously, we all think about George Wallace. And, and that's not an image that any of us, especially those of us of my generation, who were members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, who fought civil rights battles, who sat in, who actually were on the front lines of that war, we're not interested in that. But the point is that there's no reason why California if it wants to have a different immigration policy than Donald Trump, if it wants to have a different climate change policy than Donald Trump, if it wants to have different gun control laws than Donald Trump, why should California not be able to do that? And that's the argument I'm making. Right. You're sort of arguing against different types of centralization in terms of power in this country, the way it's been since the Vietnam War has sort of been stacked up and up and up on the executive branch and how much, again, resources, time, money goes into stuff like presidential campaigns is really disproportionate to the amount of attention, focus, money. Is there something other than relying on legislative maneuvers and lawyering up how does the ordinary person sort of work around this, let's say? Well, that's actually not true in the sense if you think about how did gay marriage equality come about? It came about it first in the state of Massachusetts and then in the state of California and then in a few other states. And eventually it got to enough states that the Supreme Court had to rule on it and make it the law of the land. Um, so there is not any, you know, kind of recent example of progressive legislation that didn't initiate itself in the states. And quite frankly, things like antitrust, I mean, the first suits against Microsoft to as a monopoly were came from the states. And it could be that the first suits against Google come from the states. So, I mean, all of these issues don't have to be dealt with at the central power. Uh, you know, there's a really good idea called subsidiarity, really kind of out of kind of Catholic theology, but it's, it's pretty smart, which is, says that, you know, decisions should be left at the lowest possible level possible and only moved up to the next more centralized level if they couldn't be dealt with at the lower level. And, you know, I ran for many years something called the Annenberg Innovation Lab at the University of Southern California. And our job was really to teach corporations how to innovate. And the one thing we always understood was that the corporations that were able to innovate were the corporations that push power to the edges of the organization. Uh, Lou Gerstner, who was the CEO of IBM and had to do a major turnaround of that company, and he said, we have to lower the center of gravity at IBM, to which he meant we have to get the decision-making power out of the headquarters in Armonk, New York, and move it out to the regional managers in Singapore and, you know, Mumbai and 
wherever. And, and that's what works. So it's not like some, you know, specious theoretical idea. The idea of decentralization actually is a, a really important idea. And the problem is that everything in the last 30, 40 years has gone the other direction. And whether it's Republicans or Democrats, everybody wants to bring all the power into D.C. And that's why all the lobbyists hang out there, because they think that's where they can influence the power. And, you know, we just believe that that is ineffectual. If I think about the things that affect my life sitting in Pacific Palisades, California, it's got to do with the local police department, the local fire department, the schools, the way the roads are fixed. Uh, you know, those are the issues that bother and matter to me on a real world basis. And I want to be able to affect those in my own town and not have somebody in Washington, D.C. saying how that should be done. And that should affect healthcare policy, it should affect education policy, it sh should affect all sorts of things. Of course, but if we're thinking about things that the president could sort of sign into law, um, I feel like I should clarify what I was sort of trying to ask here. You know, if we're talking about like wars, if we're talking about tax cuts that disproportionately favor the wealthy, that therefore limit how good local schools can be. I mean, there are there are ways that these things are passed down to us in different ways. I mean, you know, all of the local issues you're talking about, yes, they do have a tangible impact on our lives. And we absolutely do have a bit of a more direct relationship with that. But I mean, in the example of like a launching an antitrust case against Google, I mean, that is something where you have to launch an antitrust case. You have to have a huge group of lawyers sort of working on this case against this gigantic company that, truth be told, probably should not have had that much power to begin with. Like, there's no reason for it to have that much unfettered access and control over all these different things, right? So I'm thinking of, like, how do you get around this very sort of slow, litigious uh, aspect of this? Right. Well, you know, honestly, I, I was restricted to 6,000 words. So there was a lot of what I wanted to talk about in terms of how this would actually affect itself in the real world that, that there wasn't room for. But that hopefully will be the part of a second essay. But the basic point is this. In the long run, what I would like to see is a radically shrunk federal government. And that meant that my taxes, which today for every $3,000 of taxes that go to the federal government, 1000 of taxes go to the state government in terms of what I pay out. But that should be reversed. I would like to see it go the other way um, so that I wouldn't, that the California school system wouldn't be dependent upon the federal government for block grants for money to finance the schools. 
why shouldn't those be financed uh, at a state level? Uh, so there is nothing inherent, for instance, using the antitrust situation. So California has passed a net neutrality law, which is directly going to affect the way Google does its business. Um, California is a big enough market for Google with 40 million customers, probably all of whom are on Google, that it has to listen to California. When California says, you can't just push your own recommendation services to the top of the search engine and push those of Yelp or anyone way down the page, which is what Google has been doing, you know? So, I mean, these things can help. If California says to the Ford Motor Company, you have to have the average fleet at 50 miles to the gallon by 2030, Ford will have to do it. Ford is not going to not be in the state of California. Um, so, and, and by the way, there are 14 other states that are following California's clean car law. Uh, so, I mean, the point is that there are a lot of parts of this country that want to do the right thing. And where, where we're being impeded is that we have, you know, a group of guys in the Freedom Caucus in Congress who don't believe in global warming, who don't believe that there's anything wrong with, uh, you know, who actually believe that there is such a thing as clean coal and all this stuff. They don't have any facts behind them. They just have ideology. And they're determining how we can live our lives. It's insane. No, absolutely. I mean, but I mean, we all have to live in the world together. If one state stops using fossil fuels, starts using renewable energy and another one doesn't, both states will still feel the impact of global warming or whatever sort of negative environmental outcomes that another state does. I understand the power of states' rights, but there are certain instances where we do sort of need to act as one. And so it seems like we've been sort of pushed into this weird corner where the Democrats uh, do not control the House, where sort of, you know, the Supreme Court is going to be very conservative for probably like 40 years. So it's, 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 there's a lot of stuff working against us that we need action on right now. What are some other ways to deal with this blockade where, you know, as you note in your article, a voter in Wyoming has three times the electoral vote power than someone who lives in California? Well, look, if, if I thought there was a way to change the way the Electoral College is structured, I would, I would vote for it in a second. Of course. But the problem is it's going to take a constitutional convention. And that's, that's, a, that's a disaster scenario. Because here again, you keep coming back to the fact that the founders, partially because most of them came from Virginia, a slave-owning state, wanted to preserve power for the small states. They knew in 
1780 that New York and Pennsylvania and, and Ma Massachusetts were going to have much more population than they did, even though they were able to count slaves as two-thirds of a person for purposes of, uh, you know, population demographics and, and allocation of state representatives and stuff. The point was that they, they set it up this way, and we're stuck with it. And I don't see any way that we're not going to get stuck with it. Mm -hmm. And so uh, my only solution is to say, live and let live. If Mississippi wants to run its energy system on coal and have open carry gun laws and give teachers guns in schools and whatever, I'm not going to be able to convince them that that's not a good idea. On the other hand, if California wants to run its whole grid on solar and wind and have pretty strict assault weapons bans and have a different policy about marijuana than Mississippi does, then it should be able to live and let live. It, it, it should be able to do what it wants to do. And that's the only thing I'm, I'm trying to say. And what's so amazing to me since this article went up four days ago is the number of conservatives and libertarians who've reached out to me and said, look, I may not agree with the theories of why you want this, but I agree with this should be done. I also believe that the Supreme Court has time and time again sided with the states in issues of federal power. And I mean Alito, Thomas, Roberts, the three main conservatives have consistently ruled on the side of the states. Now, whether their adherence to the Tenth Amendment, which is where I'm basing my claims on, is as strong as I think it is, will be tested. Will be tested fairly soon, because there are a bunch of cases in which state attorney general like Xavier Becerra or Maura Healy in Massachusetts, Becerra in California, have sued the Trump administration, whether it's over immigration, DACA, environmental laws, uh, many different issues. And those eventually are going to work their way to the Supreme Court in the next two years. And then we will see. But it's, you know, it's a 50-50 chance that maybe these guys who call themselves originalists on the Supreme Court will actually say, well, look, the Tenth Amendment means what it says. If it isn't specifically written in the Constitution that this is a federal issue, then the ability to decide how clean cars should be or what the fuel mix should be in California should be decided by the state. I mean, I'm just thinking of some place like Chicago, you know, named the Windy City because of the politicians, not because of the weather. Right. <laughs> um, that's been my sort of long time 
resistance to the libertarian argument that you break off from a centralized government because it can still get totally corrupted, totally messed up on any level. I agree. But look, the central government, I mean, I believe that, you know, whether it's Scott Pruitt or, you know, any one of the agencies that, you know, Wilbur Ross, there is just as corrupt as a Chicago politician. Sure. And yet they're running the whole damn Commerce Department or the whole, you know, EPA or whatever. They're just as corrupt. So the idea that, gee, the the people in in Washington are, you know, Caesar's wife and <laughs> and the local pals are just corrupt is is not right. I mean, look, I I, I live in Los Angeles where quite honestly the city government is remarkably bipartisan and remarkably clean. I mean, look, they had a problems with the police department for a while and, and cleaned it up. So, I mean, I, I don't think that uh, we have to assume the worst, but the main point is if people started paying much more attention to their local races rather than spending their hours watching Rachel Maddow and gnashing their teeth over Donald Trump's antics, or, you know, we'd be a lot better off. I mean, we're, we're spending a tremendous amount of energy over stuff that is irrelevant. The fact that there is a caravan 2,000 miles to the south in Mexico of refugees walking for solidarity together is almost irrelevant. And yet, I can't turn on the TV without seeing people bloviating about this as <laughs> if this is some huge emergency. Right. It's nonsense. And, and of course... Trump knows this. Trump knows, as I point out in the article, Trump is the reality show president. The whole key to his ruling style is to keep everybody in an uproar. Everyone is Gary Busey. Who's <laughs> going to get fired next week? Omarosa, is she in? Is she out? You know, I mean, it's just, it's a joke. And yet, CNN and MNSBC and Fox News, they all play along with it. I mean, obviously, Fox is the worst because it's just state broadcasting. It's a propaganda network. Right. But the others are almost as bad. Oh, absolutely. That, you know, CNN feels the need to, like, set the record straight on something that, again, has no bearing on any of our lives and that to even dignify it with a response seems a little or dedicate right. hours and hours of uh, television to it is right. ridiculous, of course. We keep coming back to this idea that there's a prediction that by 2040 or so, 70% of people will live in 15 states. And the other 30%, again, as you've said, will be older, whiter, more rural. Could you envision a way for that not to happen? Discourses around gentrification, quite rightly, note that, you know, as blue as, let's say, Brooklyn is, if those people had stayed 
where they originally from, if there were jobs and things sort of incentivizing them to remain where they were, we wouldn't have these issues. Right. So this is a question of whether some kind of distributed workforce computing generation could could actually happen. And, you know, I've been hearing for 20 years that pretty soon you'll be able to live in Aspen and work by your computer uh, to anywhere in the world. And, you know, you won't need to be in a physical place with people. But I'm not positive that really works. Yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, why, why is Harper's in downtown New York? It's because you want to be at the center of the cultural conversation. You want to be able to walk out of your door and go to some hipster club and and hear some interesting music and 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 you just that's why people the young people are all moving to the cities. They want to be part of that too. And and it's not something they can they can just do virtually. Now I've heard that Obama is trying to convince people that they should be like homesteaders in South Dakota. And I've heard him say that, gee, if only 30,000 Democrats move to South Dakota, we could win. <laughs> but the, I mean, okay, but who's going to volunteer for that gig, you know? Right. Yeah, This it seems, yeah, the, the long game gambit of that seems so unpleasant let's say but yeah. yeah are there things that on a local level or just things to, that could keep young people in these different places that so much of where our food comes from is from these low population states i mean i'm originally from iowa so i know it's it's so it's a it is a serious question because i feel like a lot of the sort of motivation to move to a metropole like Los Angeles, New York, D.C., Chicago, wherever, is because it has been historically this place where culture happens or things happen. And ultimately, I we live in a world where those, those cities don't necessarily have to continue their, their monopoly on that feeling, but they do. They do. Right. So, you know, I, I write about that near the end of the piece, about how I would love to see uh, American culture kind of be, Ben Barber used a word called McWorld, right? That, every, that McDonald's was everywhere, right? So I, not to get all nostalgic with you, but in the year... 1970, I was on the road as a tour manager for Bob Dylan and the band, and we toured all over the country, and uh, mostly with the band. Bob would only come out once in a while. And if you would go to San Antonio, Texas, the music was distinctly different than the music you would hear in Austin, Texas. If you would go to New Orleans and hear Dr. John 
and Alan Toussaint, the music was different from Austin, Texas. And then you'd go up to Memphis and the music of Otis Redding and Sam and Dave was distinctly different from 300 miles away for Nashville. And then you would go up to Chicago and B.B. King and, and Howlin' Wolf were distinctly different from the music of Detroit, of Marvin Gaye and the Supremes, which was a, another 500 miles away. In other words, there were all these pockets of culture all over the country. And, you know, we, we basically eliminated that because, A, every one of those pockets of culture had local radio stations that were pushing out local music. And then we allowed Clear Channel, this is the centralization argument again, to buy all the radio stations and program them all out of one place. So now you hear the same stuff everywhere. There is no real local music scene except perhaps the Atlantic hip-hop scene in Atlanta, Georgia. You know, but, but the point is that in an ideal world, you would, you would have culture pockets even in smaller cities like San Antonio or Chattanooga, Tennessee. I mean, I, I did uh, a lot of work with the city of Chattanooga when I was at the Innovation Lab because they made a very bold decision to put in fiber optic to every single home in uh, Chattanooga through the local municipal utility. So they delivered fiber optic, internet, television, phone service to 70,000 homes and businesses. And it was transformational. I mean, that was a town, Chattanooga, that was falling apart. And now it's got a bunch of video game developers and a bunch of other things happening there that are all there because there was really good 100 megabit, 500 megabit per second service. And, and so I'm, I believe that if we think about our local communities, these things can happen. And it doesn't just happen to happen in the megacities. It can happen in Chattanooga. It can happen in San Antonio. It can happen in Olympia, Washington, where there's an extraordinary music scene going on. You know, so, I mean, I'm a believer. It, but I think we just got, as progressive, we got to get out of this way of thinking that all the great things flow from Washington, D.C. out to the, the edge. The midterms are coming up in about two weeks, and there doesn't seem to be a real sort of unified message from the Democrats. Do you perceive that as a problem? And could you see that blue wave supposedly that is coming happening? Or is it just going to be uh, a slaughter? I think it's a huge problem. I, I believe, as I write in the article, that the Senate is not going to turn blue. There's just too many structural inhibitions the way 
the Senate is set up for that to happen. Now, as far as the House is going, I think, you know, the Democrats made some huge mistakes. Um, I think they spent far too much time concentrating on the Kavanaugh nomination and all that other stuff and, and far too little time talking about the things I talk about in the article, which is that, you know, Trump, Trump is just a corrupt business regime. It's like teapot dome. I mean, it's in the history, when we look back at the history of presidential uh, rule, Trump will be right up there with Warren G. Harding and, you know, Andrew Johnson as total corrupt people who were in it for themselves and brought their cronies along with them to, you know, just raid the treasury. And so, look, he's being steered by the Koch brothers and the Mercers and and the people who, and they've already gotten most of what they want, which is a gigantic tax cut, Mm -hmm. which makes them a lot richer than they were. And then they're spending some of that extra money they got, like Adelson is, to reelect Trump so they can keep him in there. So, I mean, if the Democrats had basically run on, hey, they took all your money and now they're going to cut your health care because they they spent too much money on their tax cut, that seems to me a very simple message. And the cool thing is that Mitch McConnell has said as much. He said, look, as soon as the election's over, we're going to go after Social Security and Medicare. So, I mean... That just seems like a very simple message that would appeal to the working class across the nation. And that, by messing it up with all this other stuff, which is basically identity politics, the Kavanaugh hearings, all of that, you just cloud the message. And by the way, you don't appeal to the working class guy who says, hey, maybe I was screwed. Maybe Trump was a con man, which is what you you hope that that's what you got to say. Right. But I mean, Kavanaugh, he was the least popular Supreme Court nominee since Robert Bork. And a really shocking number of people knew who he was. So clearly, I would say it's more than just identity politics that people were reacting badly to him. It's because they understand that he is extremely conservative. He's one of George W. Bush's goons who made a lot of stuff happen for him. And that it happened that way is still... It's irritating as hell. But if you're you're a realistic politician and, and you want to think about, okay, what's doable and what's not doable... You had to look at the fact that because the Democrats had kind of screwed up the whole filibuster thing, that the Republicans could push through on a line, just a party line thing, and there was nothing they were going to do to not push it through. And so 
Okay, so are, are we going to take four weeks leading up to the election and make everybody think about this? Did he or didn't he molest this woman and not be talking about they want to take away your health care and they gave themselves a trillion dollar tax cut? Because that's the choice you made. You made that choice. And I... I'm just going to argue that that was a stupid choice. And of course, Trump understood that and played it like a fiddle. And then next thing he does is get this caravan going. And I wouldn't be surprised if it doesn't turn out that in the end, someone like Steve Bannon helped get that caravan started. I swear to God, it, it is such a perfect metaphor for Trump, even though it's 2,000 miles away and whatever it is, it's if the Democrats fall, if they don't get the House, it will be because of those two things. And that's just political malpractice. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, watching the hearings, I was very angry for a number of reasons, but most vividly because the people participating in the questioning were just like, well, are you going to go to the FBI? Are you going to have the FBI take a look at this? Which is such a stupid, you know, he was clearly lying about so many things, which should indicate to you that, yeah, maybe he doesn't really have that much respect for the law. <laughs> you know, like there were just so many. Right. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I understand that. But the point was that, from the Republicans' point of view, this was a political ploy. This was this was Tar Baby in the trap. You know, this was just when you know, just it it couldn't have been better played out from their point of view to do to accomplish what they did. And and all you have to do is look at the fact that Trump's approval ratings are up. So I mean, I. I'm not positive that, I mean, my biggest problem, as you can tell from the article, is that I think that the leadership in the Democratic Party is sclerotic. It is, it's like the Politburo during end drop-off during the Soviet Union. You know, you'd see these eight 80-year-old people up on the top there overlooking, waving at the parade. I mean, that's what we've got. And, uh, you know, I want to see young people. I want to see Seth Moulton. I want to see, you know, a lot of these younger people running the party. I, I You know, who knows what's, who's going to be the candidate? But when you see the kind of energy that Beto O'Rourke is bringing to the table uh, in Texas, whether he wins or not, it doesn't really matter. He excited a bunch of people to think about voting for the first time in a long time. And that's remarkable. And I don't see Nancy Pelosi doing that. I don't see Steny Hoyer doing that. I don't see Chuck Schumer doing that. They're not exciting anybody. Right. You know, in your article, you suggest that perhaps the Republicans will become like the Whigs and they'll sort of die out after a certain period. Well, they, they could in, this, in the following sense. 
Trump has hijacked the Republican Party. And so he is making it into a nativist, nationalist party that is anti-free trade, anti-alliances, anti-female, anti-black. I mean, he's just making it into a vehicle of his own thing. And what I'm saying is, if that is what the Republican Party is, then eventually all the smart Republicans will abandon it. And as I pointed out, a lot of them already have, whether it's Max Boot or George Will or, you know, many Steve Schmidt. These people have abandoned that Republican Party. But they still vote for everything that Trump proposes, like Ben's. Well, ben... Not, not, the, not the people I'm talking about. Right, but you. Not the never Trumpers. They're all saying they're voting Democratic. George Will says he's going to vote Democratic. Now, look, there's nobody, there's nobody with the cojones in Congress to abandon the party. The people who are abandoning the party, like Flake, are leaving. And maybe you could argue that the party has abandoned them. But there's nobody who's got the balls to take on Trump right now because they're too afraid of him. And he's, he's like a classic Peronist dictator. He, he absolutely enforces party discipline from on top. And if you cross him, he's going to tear you down. You're out of business. Ask Jeff Flake. Right. But I mean, a lot of the things that he's doing are ostensibly things that Republicans have done with more style, let's say, you know, the big tax break or all this border patrol, you know, tightening the borders and the strongman act. Again, I, I, I totally understand your point. Um, and I don't think that many Republicans probably respect him or think very highly of him in any sort of way. But he is getting a lot of stuff done. And I mean, even just like taking away health care. That's totally on the Republican agenda. It always has been. Okay, but but that ultimately means that what we used to call the country club Republican, that is the businessman who liked his tax cuts, but also liked some sense of social stability, um, is not going to abandon Trump. And I believe they are. Look at, look at what's happening. Yesterday, Caterpillar announced that its earnings were going to be much worse in the next coming year because the cost of steel to build their machines is going up because of the tariffs. Well, that's not helping Caterpillar. The same thing with Harley-Davidson. All of these things are happening that Trump is doing for his own whack job nationalist agenda, which is hurting the business community. There's a reason the stock market continues to fall. It's got nothing to do with, as Larry Kudlow says, 
oh, it's because everyone's worried the Democrats are going to take control of the, of, of the House. Nonsense. It's because the policies that Trump is putting in place in an international sense are screwing with business. Apple's business is getting hurt in China, hugely. It's now unpatriotic to have an iPhone in China. Well, that's not helpful. And all, all because Trump has this bizarre notion of what trade deficits are. I mean, it's got nothing. There's not an economist in the world except this idiot, Peter Navarro, who works for him, was the one economist he was able to find in the whole world who believed what he believed. So he hired him. There's nobody who believes that the things he's doing in trade are useful or in terms of relationships with our allies. You know, in your article, you bring up Facebook and Twitter and sort of the negative and you could, I mean, you could see it today where people were saying, oh, this is a false flag. These bombs are a false flag. And that basically now, thanks to the internet, any opinion is potentially the correct opinion, depending on what you're looking for. There aren't really gradations of the truth. Anything is potentially real. So is there a way to sort of put the genie back in the bottle, so to speak, with, with this sort of technology? Or is it, again, it's just going to take slow, methodical case that is built against companies like Facebook, Google, what have you? There is a way to do it. Um, the Europeans are exploring a new copyright regime called Article 13 which essentially says to YouTube and Facebook, um, you have to have permission to put copyright material on your services and you have to compensate for that. And you also are responsible for what goes on your services. In other words, in the United States, we have something called Safe Harbor, which essentially was given to Google and eventually Facebook and YouTube uh, by the federal government that says that they could never be held liable for anything that was on their service. Now, that had a bunch of effects. I mean, for musicians, you couldn't ever get your content off of YouTube uh, even if you wanted to. I mean, you could file what's called a takedown notice and it would go down and then it would go right back up again. So it's like blinking whack-a-mole. So, and, and for, you know, things like ISIS, ISIS was able to use these platforms to propagandize people that were, when I first started writing my book, Move Fast and Break Things, uh, there were 40,000 ISIS videos on YouTube. I mean, beheading videos, instructional videos, how to create terrorist acts. So the question was, do we want these companies to have the right to just allow themselves to be used so um, determinately against democracy, or do we want to do something about it? We could easily do something about it. And, and you think about what you just said about 
how nobody can believe anything. It's about to get way worse. I don't know if you've ever heard of a thing called deep fake, but a deep fake is, is a video that has been doctored to either put someone else's face on someone else's body or put someone other voice in someone's mouth. Um, and they're all over the web. I mean, it's, it started as a, a kind of porn gag where you take Charlotte Johansson and you morph her using artificial intelligence into the body of a porn actress. And so you'd have a Charlotte Johansson porn. And this is the kind of things that young men on the web for lulls do and think is really funny. Um, but now you, there's a video out there of Obama saying something about uh, Donald Trump that Obama never said. So you imagine pretty soon the possibility of, you know, we putting up on the web Donald Trump saying, I just launched a nuclear missile on North Korea. And who would know whether it was true or not? And by the time you figured it out, it would be too late. But the point is, the human eye can't tell that these things are fakes, but the computer could. So if these companies had the responsibility to monitor this stuff as it was being uploaded onto their platforms, they could eliminate 90% of the fakes. They could be, eliminate 90% of the stuff that was just nonsense. But they don't, it's not their business model, and they don't want to spend the money to do it. And so they're not. And this is, this is our bad. This is not that it can't be done. It's just we're this kind of free, open society that these companies somehow get a pass. Right. I don't think people who praise Silicon Valley and say, oh, it could have only happened here are wrong for that reason. Because clearly, like you said, we value this idea of freedom of expression, even when it is actually tangibly hurting people. It is not about expression at all. It's about misleading and propagandizing. But it's also about money. Absolutely. Yes. That's what right. I was going to I say. Mean, this let's, is 100%. Let's be, really, let's be really clear. The reason they don't want to do anything about it is it it would affect their revenue streams. Google is and YouTube are in all, the business of only one thing, making billions of dollars. And they do that by having as many videos on as possible. And they have no care whether any of them are legitimate or not. In fact, Many social science researchers have proved that the more outrageous the stuff is, the more it gets looked at. The question of money is also fundamental to how this concentration of power and this disproportionate amount of tension is sort of paid to this sideshow of Trump's presidency and that to sort of get to real solutions around these serious, disparate unresolved divisions of how I would like to see my city run, how I'd like my quality of life to be, what emissions, what public schools look like, all this stuff. It's, um, it is, it is at the end comes back to money and who gets to have a say. And then, and like you said, it is a lot easier for people with a lot of money to have their say when everything is 
located in one place <laughs> disproportionately so yeah but but you and i could have the life we imagine we really could um and we could have it in a way that is not unequal uh that is careful with the planet that is uh, careful with the lives of our children, we could have that. We need to just imagine what we want out of that life, and we need to design our local politics to make that possible. And the point that I have is, you know, in California, we decided that we were going to raise state income taxes on multimillionaires in order to fund the California school system, in order to lower the costs of going to the University of California. You know, when I first, you know, was at college, I had a friend who went to Berkeley in 1969. He paid $700 a year to go to the University of California at Berkeley. That was it, because he lived in California. So, I mean, we ought to get back to that. Because, you know, today, the young people leaving college with $100,000 debt, that isn't a life. That's, that's not a way of living. And so uh, we need to change this. But, but there's no reason we can't. The pr only problem we have is that Jim Jordan and the idiots in the Freedom Caucus don't want us to do that. It irritates them. Why do you think they put the past in the, in the tax law to penalize the big states that have high local taxes? They wanted to penalize, you know, they wanted to make it harder for California and New York and, you know, Massachusetts. Yes. Thank you so much. This was Great. wonderful. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced and edited by Violet Luca. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org slash save. 